0: I've titled uh, this morning's message, A Death-Defying Discipleship, although there were a few members who liked my alternate title, and I posted it on Facebook, we'll see, Maybe it'll be the director's cut version when it comes out, <laughs> we'll use the original title, A Death-Defying Discipleship. There, there comes a time, doesn't there, in everyone's life when the circumstances demand an extraordinary courage, an opportunity presents itself to stand up and be counted. To set aside comfort, to set aside convenience in a a more than ordinary way, in an exceptional way. Because the situation that we face requires nothing less than a death to self. Now, for the Christian, of course, this is a call to everyday faithfulness. By God's grace, an everyday fellowship of Jesus. But sometimes we face things that are so daunting, so challenging, sometimes even terrifying, that we know to do nothing would be a special kind of cowardice. It could be an occasion for which standing up for the truth of God's word would be costly in a way that it never has been before. It could be a season of suffering or hardship for which living sacrificially and pouring oneself out is required in a way that you've never experienced. But all of us have either faced or will someday face, if you haven't already, An opportunity to repent of the status quo. This is the kind of opportunity in which Queen Esther finds herself in today's passage. So as we pick up the narrative in Esther 4, we're going to see some important encouragement for our own troubled times and some important warnings as well. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction. So that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. "'unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. "'I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days.'" Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, "'Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. "'If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, "'but you and your father's family will be destroyed.'" Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless our time together. Help us to, by your grace, feel the courage that you would give us by your Holy Spirit. And help us to see a vision of the glory of your Son. It's by beholding him that we can become more like him. And it's in his name, the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, just to quickly review, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, the story up to this point, so we can kind of situate ourselves in the context. King Ahasuerus is angered by Queen Vashti's refusal to come parade around for the entertainment of all the officials and VIPs at the king's feast. I'll be honest with you, up to this point, my favorite character is Vashti. She she hasn't appeared since chapter one, but she's like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, all right, go on, sister, (laughs) right? (laughs) Out of spite... Ahasuerus decides to replace her. So he holds a nationwide beauty pageant for women to audition as the new queen. And for reasons that aren't exactly clear, a Jewish virgin named Esther enters the pageant. Maybe she's compelled to enter the pageant. It's not exactly clear. But her cousin, a man named Mordecai, who's basically her adoptive father after the death of her parents, instructs her to not let it be known that she is a Jew. Esther is exceptionally beautiful, she wins the pageant, she becomes the new queen. Her cousin Mordecai tries to keep tabs on her from outside the courtyard of the king's harem. And one day, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king, so he lets Esther know, and the plot is foiled. Chapter 3 introduces us to this terrible guy named Haman, who rises up the ranks in the king's court. And one day, Mordecai, again for reasons that are unclear, fails to pay homage to him as he passes by. So now Haman is gunning for Mordecai. And not just that, he wants to eradicate all of Mordecai's people. So he convinces King Ahasuerus to issue an order that all of the Jews should be killed. And this is where chapter 4 picks up with Mordecai having heard the news, beginning basically a, a, a public protest of sorts, putting on sackcloth and ashes, wailing in the middle of the city, And as we see in verse 3, the news of the king's edict spreads and so does the protest. So all the Jews are now entering a time of fasting and mourning. They are facing, frankly, what the Jewish people have sadly faced many times before and will even face, after the events of this book, going even into the 20th century, the threat of genocide. And of course, Mordecai wants to take this up with Esther. She is the queen, after all. Surely she can speak to the king and get him to reverse the order, right? But Mordecai has told her previously not to reveal that she's a Jew. And now he wants her to take the risk of outing herself to save their people. Now for those of us sitting on the outside, this is an easy decision to make, isn't it? You take whatever risk is necessary to do what's right. We don't like movies about people who are cowards and remain cowards. We love movies. We love stories about people who rise to the occasion. And we think, I would be like that. I would do that. It's always easy, isn't it, to know what somebody else should do. We always know the easy answer when it applies to someone else, don't we? This is why all of us are better advice givers than we are advice takers. (laughs) especially especially when it comes to making decisions that are costly. The Jewish people are facing certain death. And Esther feels that if she stands up and outs herself as one of them, she does too. But let's not be too quick to judge her reticence. She basically tries to tell Mordecai, I can't do it because I'd be killed just for approaching the king without being summoned. And it seems like a big cop-out. But if we think about it carefully, Esther is a lot like us. Or we're a lot like Esther. Even when we know the right thing to do, it can be very, very difficult to actually do it. When we know when we know it could or definitely will seriously cost us. The queen in our passage today is facing the most serious cost of all. She's facing death. To rise to the occasion is, in her mind, to choose to die. How do you process something like that? I know it's the right thing to do, but if I do it, I will definitely be killed. Well, I want us to help um, process Esther's decision, her decision-making, and our own decision-making, by laying out three principles I think we can derive from this passage and its implications. Near to the passage and far in our own situation. Here's the first principle. The cost of doing nothing is a death of self. The cost of doing nothing is a death of self. Here's what that means in this situation. As far as we can tell, all the evidence from the book up to this point are that Esther and Mordecai are worldly Jews. The fancy word would be they've been acculturated. That is, they have essentially acclimated to the surrounding culture And they do not seem to seek to live in the world, but not of it. They have been basically of the world. Perhaps we see that in Esther's own entrance into the beauty pageant. Maybe she's coerced. Maybe Mordecai ordered her to do it for some perceived benefit. But she's entered the king's harem. She wins the queendom by trading on her looks, and it's suggested on her sexual prowess. But even if all of that is sketchy or scant evidence, we definitely see it in the way Mordecai tells her, hide your faith, hide your ethnicity, and her apparent acquiescence to that request. There's also um, some evidence, uh, almost a literary feature of the book, by God's sovereignty, Mordecai and Esther's names have kind of pagan roots embedded in their names, The Jewish reader at the time would recognize that as they see these names in the Hebrew. The bottom line is Esther and Mordecai have been obscuring their ethnicity. They've been hiding their faith, and they're trying to work the system in some way. They're not bad people, per se. They do some honorable things, right? Mordecai didn't have to report on the assassination plot. He didn't have to do that. And he doesn't seem to care too much when he doesn't immediately get the credit for that. But they're, generally speaking, worldly. In terms of our own faith and our own time and place, we would say it's a, it's a cultural Christianity. Cultural Christians. So in a very real way, Esther's distinctiveness has already died. She's already killed it. Her real self has already died. And while she doesn't know if intervening in this edict will do anything at all except get her killed... She does know that if she does nothing, her people will die. And if her people die, so will die the traditions and the heritage and the inheritance of the faith. Even if she lives by doing nothing, she will lose the grounding of her identity. If she does nothing, she will, in a vital sense, experience a death of herself. And this is true for you and me, too. In a world of cultural Christianity, where the world's allurements and offerings are the easiest, most go with the flow choices to make, we face every day the temptation to hide our true selves. The cost of going along to get along is a death of one's true self, a smudging of one's identity, of one's belonging to and belovedness in God. In the New Testament, Jesus calls this salt that has lost its flavor. And what do you do with salt that has lost its flavor? Jesus says it's good for nothing but being thrown out. Esther and Mordecai have all along been in danger of losing their saltiness. Um, I'll confess, I don't have Mordecai all figured out. I can't quite figure him out. He's acculturated, as I said, except here he puts on sackcloth and ashes, protesting the injustice of the decree. That's definitely going to draw attention. I'd like to think he's beginning to have a change of heart about what it means to be Jewish in his time and place, and perhaps he is. But another part of me wonders if he's a little bit, maybe before this moment, but he's a little bit like your uncle on Facebook who's always posting crude jokes or cussing and he drinks too much, except when he posts about putting prayer back in schools, right? <laughs> Or or your niece on Instagram, who's always posting photos that are a little too provocative, maybe a lot too provocative, but she has a Bible verse in her bio, right? (laughs) It's a kind of double mindedness. But there's no doubt that in this instance, at least, Mordecai is willing to take a risk. And when he does, Esther's initial response is to send him clothes to cover it up out of embarrassment, out of concern about his safety about being found out. She's still, at this moment at least, wanting to continue hiding in the same way the cousin, who's now making a spectacle of himself, once told her to. He told her to hide! And now he's in the spotlight. This kind of cowardly death of self faces us today too. In our day, it's commonplace to see those who claim the name of Christ compromise with liberal theology or heretical social concerns. They claim it's out of a desire for justice or standing up for the marginalized, but so often it's really just an embarrassment about biblical truth, a cowardice about what it costs in today's culture to say what the Bible says about gender, about sexuality, about abortion. It's also commonplace to see those who claim the name of Christ Compromise with worldly sexuality or fleshly attitudes, arrogance, quarrelsomeness, greed, envy, reviling. All things Paul says are just as worthy of damnation as sinful sexuality and a trade in righteousness for political power. They claim it's out of a desire to get the right conservative policies in place, but so often it's really just a finding of the narrow way of Jesus inconvenient or incompatible with winning. And ends justify the means pragmatism. All for power. And the result of all of this is a loss of our distinctiveness. It's a hiding of a light under the bushel. A dilution of saltiness. It's the death of our real selves. And when this happens over and over again, we find ourselves more at home in the world and more at odds with God's call to radical discipleship. Ian Duguid says, when we compromise with the world, we easily find ourselves becoming isolated and distant from God's people and out of touch with God's concerns in the world, just as Esther did. In seeking to save herself, Esther is already actually enacting a kind of death of herself, her true self at least. To go along to get along, to not rock any boats, to be constantly trying to fit in may be a way to survive, but it's still a kind of death. It's no way to live in the light of God's holiness and glory. It's the kind of death of everything that ultimately matters about who we are. J.C. Ryle says, To be a Christian will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, even hated. Thus, to avoid mockery, to avoid ridicule, slander, persecution, and hatred, to avoid discomfort or disdain or embarrassment in this day is to make sure nobody really knows you're a Christian, or at least not one who really takes it seriously. It's a death of self we ought to be desperately afraid of. Not physical death, the death of distinction, the death of witness, the death of faith. In this case, of course, to do nothing is to see the physical deaths of her Jewish people. It's genocide. Curiously, Mordecai tells Esther that to do nothing would surely be the death of herself. Verse 13, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. And this is really frustrating to me because this is precisely the point where a faithful Jew would say, deliverance will come from God himself. And he doesn't say that. Maybe that's what he means, but he doesn't say it. If you're going to appeal to intervention, you would think acknowledgement of the reality of divine intervention would be a possibility here. But he just says, from another place. But even if that happens, he says, you and your father's family will be destroyed. I don't know how he knows this. Right? We'd be be rescued, but you're going to die. It's actually a kind of curse that he's putting on her. And if I'm Esther, I might be tempted to respond at this point, you're the one who told me to hide, you idiot. (laughs) Make up your mind. But in a nod toward the providence of God, who uses even our dumb and deceitful decisions toward his own ends, found in Mordecai's charge, continuing in verse 14, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, Mordecai might be an unlikely source for such a bold charge, but the charge is nevertheless a sound one. It's it's one that faces you and me as well. We have been placed where we've been placed to bear witness to God. All of us, as we consider the dangers and temptations of the world around us, must remember that God has providentially placed us. Wherever you are, in whatever situation, context, circumstance, he's put you there for such a time as this. Christ calls us to count the cost. He tells us that to follow him, we must take up our cross. Which leads me to the second principle. The second principle. The cost of discipleship is a death to self. The cost of discipleship is a death to self. To do nothing is a kind of death of self. But the cost of discipleship is a death to self. I'm going to try to make this distinction. If you're like, what's the big difference with those prepositions? It's at this point... I think Esther is finding the grace to make the change. Her motives may still be mixed. She doesn't become perfect. She might really just see herself between a rock and a hard place. Like, I'm going to die either way. I might as well try to save my people. But charitably, demonstrably, we can see her next moves as a rising to the occasion. In his commentary, uh, Anthony Tomasino says, Of all the main characters, only Esther displays any character development through the course of the narrative. While other characters might experience a change of position or office, Esther actually develops a backbone. (laughs) And the opportunity before her now requires something she hasn't yet faced. And it has put her in a position to discover what she's really made of. Her hand might be forced, in a way, But she's finding the courage that she needs to die to herself and do what must be done to save the day. I don't know if you've seen the movie 1917, came out a few years ago. Uh, It takes place during World War I. There's a British regiment behind enemy lines. They know another regiment is going to be ambushed. That they are walking into a trap and all of the soldiers will be massacred. So they send out two soldiers on basically a suicide mission. Blake and Schofield and Blake while not foolhardy is courageous for the mission he's actually eager to be on this mission for one thing his brother is a part of the other regiment and he obviously wants to save his brother so he eagerly accepts the mission to journey deep within enemy lines to take word to the others and he recruits to go with him his best buddy Schofield who definitely does not want to be on this mission he knows it's crazy he knows they will not survive in the early minutes. There's that famous scene. If you've seen the movie, it's, it's famously one shot. The whole movie, is the, it, it looks like one in, um, uninterrupted take. And there's that famous scene where they're in the trenches and the camera's following them and Schofield is going through all the reasons why we should not be doing this. Let's be clever about this. You know? He does not want to be on this mission. He knows it's uh, not survivable. And he's anxious and he's fearful and he protests and he's practically dragged along by Blake. And there's an early moment where a down German soldier kills Blake. It's shocking. It happens like in the first 15 minutes of the movie because we're thinking Blake is the hero. And he's killed in the early minutes of the film. And all that's left is the scaredy cat, Schofield. And now we begin to see that he's actually... The real hero of the movie, because he must finish the mission all by himself, and he nearly dies several times trying to get the message to his comrades in order to save their lives. This fearful character becomes the hero of uh, um, because the circumstances that he's thrust into demand it. He must be brave. He doesn't have a choice. He must be brave. He has to put his fear and anxiety aside and do what must be done to complete the mission, to serve his commanders and to save his friends. He didn't know it, but he was put on that mission for such a time as this. I want you to think through, what's the such a time as this that you have found yourself in? What occasion has been given to you for your own rising? There's a lot of examples that we could work through that face Christians today. The school teacher, expected to call little boys as if they're little girls and little girls as if they're little boys, expected not just to accommodate but to affirm different gender identities, born of confusion and rebellion against God's law. Maybe you're uh, an employee in the workplace, you're expected to affirm different sexualities, not just tolerate or accommodate or be friendly to or be respectful toward, but to affirm, to celebrate. Maybe for you it's just a relationship that you need to reconcile. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent. Or there's someone you need to forgive, give grace to. And there's blame-shifting there's a responsibility that needs to be taken to show that we must decrease so that Christ may increase. Maybe for you during um, this season, it, it's just a trial or it's a hardship. Maybe it's a, a kind of suffering, physical or emotional. And you could, th- through the pain or the anxiety, make the easy choice of just complaining and giving into fear. But maybe it's an opportunity to use your circumstances to show your faith in God. Paul says, we have this treasure in a jar of clay. Why does he use that image? Because a jar of clay is fragile. And when it's broken open, we see what's inside. Through our brokenness, people will see what we truly treasure, what we really value. People will see what we're made of. Maybe your difficulty is an opportunity to rise to the occasion of making much of Christ, no matter what. It doesn't mean acting like what hurts doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean acting like the cost isn't costly. All of those examples are costly in different ways. Unless you're a missionary to a place that's deadly hostile to the gospel, they probably won't cost you your life, though. They could cost you your livelihood. They could cost you embarrassment. They could cost you your friends. You could lose your friends. You could lose face. But rising to the occasion certainly requires a death to self. Putting aside our self-interest and self-centering and taking up our cross and showing ourselves as followers of Jesus. The cost of discipleship is a death to self. This is what discipleship is all about. In fact, simply standing up for your principles is ultimately worthless if it's not about the glorification of Jesus. If you're just being stubborn, or just being performative, or just being religious, it's not truly standing up for Jesus, because just standing up can still be a matter of pride. It's standing up for Jesus that is a matter of putting our pride to death. As I said, this spiritual death to self is the necessary cost of discipleship. Without dying to self, we not only face the natural death that every human being faces; we're not going to be, you know, able to avoid that death anyway. But we face the worst death—the eternal death of those who reject the gospel. This is why, in his story, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has a character encouraging another one to die before you die. There is no chance after. Die before you die. This is the way of Jesus, to take up one's cross. When Esther finally agrees to die to herself, what she says next is actually a symbol of this, I think. Verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. Fasting here is a sign of death to self, because what is fasting but a sacrificing of appetites? It's a practical expression of death to self, of dying to yourself. It's a sign of faith as well because, biblically speaking, fasting is trusting God to satisfy us. Putting to death our flesh is trusting that God will satisfy you. That he will keep you alive in the ways that eternally matter. A death defined discipleship is a faith-filled, prayer-filled pursuit. When we decide to die to ourself, we are trusting that God will give us life. That he will give us the grace we need for the difficult walk ahead. That if he's he's asking you to rise to the occasion, he's not asking you to go alone. He will be with you every step of the way. I'm reminded of the passage in The Hiding Place. As Corey ten Boom with her father is contemplating the prospect of torture and death ahead of her. Just a little girl. She says, I burst into tears. I need you, I sobbed. You can't die. You can't. Corey, her father, said gently, When you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? Why, just before we get on the train, she said. Exactly, said her father. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. He'll give you the ticket when it's time to have the ticket. He's he's not going to leave you in the lurch. For such a time as this, God will provide the strength we need. He will provide the strength we never thought we'd have exactly when we need it. I can't do it, we say. Well, of course you can. not But with God, all things are possible. Whether you face taking a stand for truth or walking a road of suffering or even death itself, It is having died with Christ and risen again in him that we can face anything that threatens us with a death-defying confidence in the God who loves us. We can face these things head on because of the eternal security of our union with Christ. We can say, like Esther, in the end of verse 16, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. But you really won't perish. You won't. Because the death that we ought to be afraid of, the death of condemnation, has been absorbed by Christ himself at the cross. And that's my third and final point. The cost of deliverance is the death of Christ. The cost of deliverance is the death of Christ. I love chapter 4 because I got the movie lines. For such a time as this, right? That's that's something you put on a mug, right? On a pillow. (laughs) Buy it down at the Cracker Barrel, right? (laughs) Such a time as the end. If I perish, I per- I mean, I got goosebumps. If I perish, I perish. It's so cool. It's something Stallone would say in an action movie, right? If I die, I die. Right? <laughs> <laughs> He's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Esther's rising to the occasion. She's a death-defying disciple. And in facing full face forward, The prospect, in her mind, the very certainty of death. When she says, if I die, I die, she's not saying, well, I might die. Like she, she, in her mind, she's walking straight into a buzzsaw. And this is a foreshadow of our Savior Jesus. Because Esther is willing to put her own life on the line to save her people. Jesus said there's no greater love that one can have than to lay down one's life for their friends. And then he proved that he meant it. And he proved that he himself was love incarnate by putting his money where his mouth was. He laid down his life, going to the cross to save sinners. And not just among his own people, but among all people. Esther is willing to face death for the Jews. Christ was willing to face death for the whole world. And in this way, Esther is a foreshadow of Jesus. But she's not a perfect foreshadow, right? She's not. She's a little more shadowy you know, shadowy than we would like her to be. One commentator I read said, we can't really consider Esther a type of Christ in the sense of biblical typology because there's so much she says and does that's incongruent with Christ's work. And to that I say, what type of Christ didn't say or do things incongruent with Christ's work? There, was, there is no perfect type of Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us perfectly reflect the holiness, the righteousness of Jesus. Sure, in, in some ways Esther is an anti-type or an you know, anti of Christ. So for instance, she trades in on her beauty for position. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, the Bible tells us he, he wasn't much to look at. He couldn't do that. Esther hides herself, doesn't want her belonging to God's people known. Jesus didn't do that. Everywhere he's going, he's saying, everything you think, believe, expected it's all about me. Esther faces the potential of death, not necessarily the certainty. Jesus didn't do that. Esther is a type or anti-type of Christ because um, uh, her work foreshadows his, but she's obviously not Christ himself. Because while Esther is taking a risk, she might perish, she might not, Jesus' death was an unavoidable mission. He came specifically to die. He came to die to deliver his people. And if you want that deliverance, there's no amount of works, there's no amount of religiosity, there's no amount of personal courage that will earn, earn it for you. Only in Christ's death are we set free. And in Christ's death, we will live. We truly are called into a death-defying discipleship. We can freely and confidently say about any situation, including our own physical deaths, if I perish, I perish. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We can defy death if we realize that in Christ we will never truly die. The outcome to Esther's decision is a complete reversal. I don't, I'm not going to steal any of the Uh, uh, a brother's thunder who are preaching into the next chapters but Esther's decision to die to herself begins a great succession of victories indeed just by the end of this chapter verse 17 Mordecai who's been ordering Esther around up to this point is suddenly doing what she commands (laughs) Mordecai didn't you know he went and did all that she commanded him there's a reversal looking a bit ahead while for a bit, Esther is timidly approaching the king, asking for things with lots of introductions. And if it pleases you, she weeps before him. She, she throws herself at his feet, etc. Et Eventually, the king is coming to her for wisdom and counsel. And Mordecai rises into the ranks of second in command. And this, too, is a picture of the deliverance of those for whom Christ died. Persecuted, insulted, marginalized, sometimes even slaughtered today... In the age to come, we will rule under Christ over the earth. The Bible even says we will judge angels. You will find yourself in the death to yourself. You will find yourself if you die to yourself and hide yourself in the death of Christ. Because there is no greater reversal than that of our Lord gloriously rising from the grave. And if his death becomes ours, his resurrection becomes ours too. Because his resurrection becomes ours, we can say, if I perish, I perish. Not with fear, but with boldness and with joy. We can, look, we can look death in the face and say, where's your sting, bro? We can say to death, I defy you. By now it's been obvious, as so we've been tracking through, this book, that the most obvious character in the story is the one whose name does not appear. God is not mentioned in the book. He never speaks, and he's not even spoken to. In fact, it's curious, they mention fasting but not praying. Fasting goes along with prayer. And yet, even in the apparent absence of any explicit mindfulness of God, he still saves his people. Even if he is neglected, he still comes through. Even if he is not acknowledged, he is still directing things according to his own providential wisdom. He is still sovereign, whether you admit it or not. Whether you even believe in him or not. You can go on making all of your godless plans, but the Lord is still upholding the universe by the word of his power. And this literary feature, the the the, the, um, withholding of the name of God... Becomes itself a reflection of the gospel, I think. Because while we are strangers and aliens to the way of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saves the ignorant. He saves the rebellious. He saves the wayward. The gospel is thoroughly and entirely the work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace. And what extravagant grace it is. I'll finish with this. I'm struck in this book of the sheer extravagance at play. I, I list everything, but up to chapter 3, just see just how much, I mean, it's so gaudy. It's so extravagant. The way the king and his court live their lives, full of feasting and drinking and sumptuous parties and exorbitant amounts of money and outlandish plans and indulgent beauty routines. The list goes on and on, all in the interest of the flesh, all in a kind of self-indulgence. But we have a king who has poured himself out. He has paid the highest price. He has made the most extravagant provision imaginable, his own flesh and blood. There is no more costly costliness than the cross of Christ. And he did that for sinners like you and me. He spared no expense. He held nothing back. He gave it all that we might have it all. Romans 8.32 says, He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us all things. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who doesn't sit back to feast while we die, but who goes to die that we might sit back and feast. If you want to defy death, you must repent of your sin, die to yourself, and put your faith in Jesus. Trust his work on the cross and out of the tomb is the only price that can be paid for your deliverance from sin and death. Unlike Mordecai's vague foretelling, I'm here to tell you Your deliverance will not come from some other place, but only through the costly sacrifice of Jesus. Your deliverance doesn't come from another place than the cross. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would press it deep into our hearts. Father, I don't know what um, all these brothers and sisters are going through in their life. I know this, this room and the room below us watching on the video is... These rooms are full of concern, of anxiety, of hurts, of of suffering, and certainly of sin. And we need your grace to rise to the occasion of making much of your son. Help us to own the responsibility of, of making your son, Christ Jesus, look big in our lives. Even if that means our diminishing and our decreasing. Help us to see, help us to see the increase of your Christ in all things. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.